And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, let me just join Emily in welcoming you to Redeemer City. Uh, my name's Nate. It's good to be with you this morning. So we've been in, you know, the book of Nehemiah for a number of weeks, and we said each week, we're just asking, what can we learn from this community in the fifth century as they're seeking to live out the purposes of God in their day? And what might that mean for our day? And if you've been with us, this chapter, there's something that happens that hasn't happened since the whole book has started. And it's this. There's joy. 
Do you notice that? In verse 10, I just remarked that the joy of the Lord will be your strength. At the very end, the very end is there's this very great rejoicing that hasn't been ever in this book since now. Let me ask you to be honest for a moment. How would you complete the sentence? The path to my greatest joy would be fill in the blank. You know, I'm, first, I'm, I'm sure for some of us, you know, it might be, you know, if I could just have that special someone. For others of us, it, it, it might be, if I could just get that position. For others of us, it might be, if I could just have a family. For others of us, it, it might be, if I could just have that marriage. Or, or maybe for some of us it could be if my kids could just end up okay. I mean, to be honest, all of us would fill in the blank with perhaps some, some of those things. And if we're honest, we know there's a problem with that. We know there's a problem because intuitively we know that all of the things I just mentioned, they're vulnerable. In other words, one, we, we may not get them. And secondly, if we do get them, they won't last forever. In other words, in our innate nature, we are building our life on something. Something that we think is going to give us great joy. And this community shows us something completely different today, about where to build your life, the path to great joy, and it's simply this, it's scripture. The whole chapter orbits around scripture. That's where it begins and ends. That's what leads to this great joy. And I would say this, some of you this morning, you potentially hear that and maybe you've been around for a while, or maybe this is one of your first times in a setting like this, you're, you're a little skeptical of that. Really? Build your life on this? I don't know. Others of us, we know that's the right answer, right? But it's a little bit like when you tell your kids they need to eat their vegetables, you know? Like, I know I should like this, but to be honest, how little of this can I get? Well, listen, no matter where you're coming from today, whether you're skeptical, whether you're committed, or somewhere in between, this passage shows us two things about what it means to build your life on Scripture. Firstly, how to build your life on Scripture, and then lastly, why to do it. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll step in. Father, um, thank you that you are attuned and you know us. We thank you for your word and how it meets us where we are. And Lord, as we open it, as we encounter it, we ask you to change us. Change what we believe, what we think, and even who we are in light of it. We pray that just simply by the power of your spirit, through your scripture, you do that today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, how do you build your life on Scripture? You know, um, the, the chapter opens, and when it says all the people gathered as one man into the square, it picks up from the chapter before in which the city was repopulated. And there's approximately 50,000 people in the city. So just imagine Camp Randall being filled, right? Only it's not gathering for a game on Saturday. It's gathering to listen to Scripture. Uh, In verse 3, it says this, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. It says that they started in the morning all the way till midday. And that means they lasted. They sat there for six hours, right? This is a great moment for a great pastor joke. I won't be going six hours this morning, right? But just imagine if we started the service at 10 and ended at 4 this afternoon. That's, that's what this community did. And, and Ezra brings out the book of the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and he reads. And the first thing we we notice about this community is that they're listening attentively. It says the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And, And here's what that means practically. It means in this community, in this moment, the scriptures were of the highest priority in their life. It wasn't like number four on their list in their to-do, or even three, or even secondly, number two. Like it was at the top. It was central. And think about this for a moment. For six hours, these scriptures were just read. It oriented them to who they were and who they are and who this God was, and what he was up to in this world. They would have listened to their identity, not being something that they created, but actually something that had been given. They would have read the story about a God who created the world, who put humanity at the center of it, made in the image of God. They would have read about the fall into sin, the turning away of humanity from God, and yet God in the midst of that, coming after them, making a covenant with Abram, and making a promise that from him and through him all the nations would be blessed, that God had a plan to rescue and restore, and the story goes on and it goes on and it goes on. This community sat there because it was central. Let's just pause for a moment here because If you're going to build your life on Scripture, that's really the question before us as a community, is where is it in our priorities? Is it it central to our life, or is it peripheral? And let's be honest for a moment. Attentive listening to Scripture, it is not easy Um, You know, the average person picks up their iPhone 2,617 times a day. I mean, to be honest, I woke up this morning, made myself some breakfast, and while I'm making breakfast, I flipped on to see LeBron score 56 last night, you know? And I have a little bit of hope that the Lakers might do something. Probably not. But right, right at my fingertips, that's where it is. 
And let's be honest, we live in a distracted world of Slack and email and Twitter and InstaFace. And listen, I'm not a technophobe, but I'll say this. Attentive listening in a distracting world, it means this, you're not going to simply fall into it. Let me ask this for a moment. What would it look like for you in this season? And let me say, it's going to be different for each of us, right? Because not everybody's in the same season. I mean, I, I got kids who are older. They can actually get up, make their own breakfast. Like, I can start my day that way. Some of you have, like, a one-year-old and just, like, make it and get out of bed and, like, feed them. Like, that's the, like, you made your day. You know what I mean? But what would it look like in your life for Scripture to be at the center of it? To be the highest priority in the midst of a distracting world. Listen, there's a moment in the book of Hebrews, and the author is quoting Psalm 95, and he says this. It's not just David speaking, because David wrote Psalm. He says that that Psalm, he says, the Holy Spirit spoke it. And what's remarkable, he uses the present tense. In other words, do you understand what it's saying there? It's saying this, that God is speaking now to you. That God is speaking through his word. When you encounter scripture, he is speaking to you. That's the audacious claim and privilege of the scriptures. It's that you today, like you can hear from God. You don't have to wonder who he is, what he's up to. Yeah, there's a lot of questions, but he speaks. And this community begins the path, and we'll see it to this great joy right here. It's attentive listening. But secondly, there's something else. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see this. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. D.A. Carson writes this. The people all stood up, not as a mere formality, but a declaration that from now on, the words of this book were to be authoritative in the community's life. You know, um, the second piece of building your life upon Scripture is listening submissively to Scripture. That it's authoritative. And let me just say for a moment here, some of you, this is problematic. You say things like this, like, we're modern people. I can understand why maybe those people back then would do that. But we're modern. We're smarter than them. You might say, how can I actually believe <clears throat> that the scriptures have authoritative purpose and a place in all times and all places over all cultures? And let me tell you why. I want to challenge you if you're thinking this. And by the way, if you, if you agree with the statement that scripture is authoritative, great. But I guarantee you, those people around you, they don't. And I think it's naive to believe it. But let me tell you how you can challenge this. A while back, Jonathan Lehman, a pastor, posted on Twitter he had been to the Museum of the Bible, which is in Washington, D.C., and he posted a picture of what is called the Slave Bible. 
And the reason why it's called the Slave Bible, it was, it was because this is the Bible that the slave masters said was okay for the slaves to have. And what was different is they had removed portions of it. One of the, one of the places they removed was the book of Philemon. You know what that's about? That's about Paul writing to a master about a runaway slave who Paul sends back to him. And listen to what Paul says. Receive him no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. In other words, you know what they knew back then? And by the way, many of these people were Christians, claiming to be Christians, claiming we are people of the book, and they knew they had to alter it. In other words, if you want to pick and choose what you want to believe in Scripture, do you know what the evil that that leads to? And this is the point, right? We all do it. Just be honest, right? I like what the Bible says about forgiveness, but I don't like what it says about sex. I like what the Bible says about this, but about power or about my anger. Listen, we all want to make excuses why this portion doesn't relate to us. But listen, it's not only the damage that it does when we reject portions of it. It's also what we miss out on. Uh, Keller, in his book, Reason for God, writes this, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any true relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. And he uses this great example of the movie, The Stepford Wives. I don't know if you've seen that, but in essence, it's just the story of a bunch of guys who decide to turn their wives into robots, so they can just say a bunch of like, yes, dear, of course, dear. And here's the problem. Their marriage isn't personal anymore. It's not intimate anymore. And Keller makes this point. If you do that with Scripture, if you don't let it offend you, if you pick and choose, you'll end up with a step for God. a God of your own making. Listen, let me ask you, where do you feel the most dissonance, the most resistance in Scripture? Can I actually challenge you? Think about this for a moment. Do you really want an intimate relationship with a true and living God? If that's where true and lasting joy is, then he has to be able to contradict you. So building your life is not just listening attentively. It's it's listening submissively. But thirdly, it's applying it practically. And look at verse 7. I'm not going to read the first part. A lot of names there, okay? I'm going to start the Levites. Uh, Emily did a great job, Okay. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Listen, one of the challenges this community had in that moment was 
these books were written hundreds of years earlier. And they're trying to make the connection. How does that relate to where I am today? And that's hard work. One commentator noted they're they're helping, the the Levites are helping them bridge the cultural gap between the last 70 years in Babylon that they've experienced with their spiritual heritage found in Scripture. And listen, the same is true today. Some of us, if we're honest, the reason why it's so hard to listen attentively and maybe even submissively is because we just go, I don't how do I understand how this relates? Like, how do Levitical laws and the story of a dismembered concubine or the exodus out of Egypt or the wilderness wanderings, how do those relate to anything in my life? It takes careful application. Listen, and you don't have to have a Bible degree. You don't have to have a seminary degree. Not that those things hurt, but you don't have, one, you don't have to have one to understand it. I would say this, um, a couple resources. Um, you should get a study Bible, a really good study Bible. Let me be honest, when I'm reading through the prophets and I have no idea what's going on, I just have my study Bible open because it's just helpful for me. But secondly, w- one other thing, and maybe I'm being hypocritical, but just download the Reading Scripture app. It has a video before every book that just has a visual overview. It's, it's just the Bible project. It's a wonderful resource. And I know I just said stay off your phones, but you know what I mean. Like, there are helpful things here. It helps you understand. But here's what I think is most actually wonderful about this passage, is these people are actually realizing how the scriptures apply to their lives. It's wonderful. And think about this. Listen, if you're a teenager, and right now you are working through your identity and your significance and your work, your, your worth. And you're doing it in the midst of a landmine of relationships of those who speak unkind words and sometimes unwise words. Listen, you want to have relevance and stability and poise. You need to sit and listen and consider the fact. Genesis 1 and 2 says, you are made in the image of God. Like, how about starting there to build your identity? Right there. That's what God says about you. You're the crown of his creation. Or how about this? In your marriage or family or another conflict you're having, you need wisdom. You need help. How do you work through the conflict? I think about James 4. James 4 is incredibly convicting because most of the time in conflict, we say the real problem is the other person. But James 4 says, actually, it's the desires. It's the over-desires. It's the epithumia. That's the word used. It's, it's good things becoming ultimate. That's what's caused the conflict. It's your own heart. Or how about this? Some of you have walked through abuse. And, and I would just say this humbly. You need to work out a theology of suffering. I know it sounds heady, 
But you need to see a God who is not indifferent or apathetic, one who sees and one who promises to one day right all wrongs. And you know where that's found? I mean, it's in plenty of places, but Psalm 94, oh my word, go there today. That's what the psalmist is wrestling with. Do you realize, do you realize how clearly Scripture, when it's applied to your life, how it speaks into that? Oh my word. It's wonderful. So building your life on Scripture is attentively, it's submissively, it's practically, and then we'll come back to verses 9 and 12 in a moment. But I want you to see, lastly, it's obediently. Um, after the assembly, the six hours, um, the next day, we see this in verses 13 and 15, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites, they come together and they study the words of the law. That's verse 13. And they find it written there about this festival, this feast of booths, that they're to practice it. And so they do it. Now we'll come back to the Feast of Booths in a moment, but I want you to realize something. They are responding to Scripture with just obedience. And listen, oftentimes this is, this is where it feels a little bit like a little bit of a rub because Listen, our world tells us that basically the path to your greatest joy is found by looking within to your own desires and from those desires living from them. This is completely different. This is saying the path to your greatest joy is actually something speaking into your life from outside of you and then turning your life in that direction. In other words, our culture says freedom is the absence of all constraints. What, what's um, one of the most compelling and almost like reorienting psalms is Psalm 119. And the reason why it's so reorienting or even disorienting in our current moment is over and over again, it just talks about how the psalmist just loves the law of the Lord. And let me give you a couple of verses here. Psalm 119, 20, verse 20 says this. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I mean, I don't know about you, but like if that was like, I mean, put that on your Twitter page, right? Like whatever, or your Instagram, like what kind of response are you get there? Look, look, look at this one, Psalm 1944 and 45. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. This is remarkable because notice how it's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey. I'm going to keep it. And then it says, and I shall walk in a wide place. Do you know what a wide place is? A wide place is freedom. And do you know how different that is than what our culture says? It's the complete opposite. It says, I'm going to obey so I can walk in freedom. In other words, freedom is not the absence of constraints. It's the presence of the right ones. So as we listen attentively, as we listen submissively, as we apply practically, and as we respond obediently, at the very end of verse 17, it leads to great joy. Now, we're missing something here. And it's very important in this last part. It's really this why. Why to build your life in the scriptures 
Because we skipped a portion, and it's an important portion. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Um, they spent six hours listening, and they end up weeping. And some of you are like, Nate, you just said, like, if you do all this, it leads to great joy. What? That's completely contradictory. What is happening here? And here's what's happening. They're beginning to understand how their lives have not obeyed, how they've rebelled, how they've been wayward, and they're weeping. Why is that the path to great joy? Let me put it this way. Um, Van Gogh, one of his famous paintings is entitled Self-Portrait with a Bandaged Ear. It's a great title, right? Compelling. But Van Gogh painted it while he was in an asylum. And what led him there was he had a falling out with his roommate, And in response, Van Gogh had taken a blade to his ear and cut off the lobe, wrapped it in a piece of paper, took it to a friend, and said, guard this object carefully. And that's what led him to be put in an asylum. And what's remarkable is in the asylum, this is where he painted that painting. And think about it, in our day, we got our Instagram feeds, right? We got our, like, we got our filters, right? He's got the original filter. He's got a brush. He can paint whatever he wants about an image of himself, right? But what does he do? He paints himself as he really is. I mean, he could have, the original filter could have just filtered over, added the ear. No big deal, right? I look good, everybody, I'm fine. And yet, Van Gogh paints an honest portrait. One author put it this way, he willingly captures his own spiritual and relational poverty. Listen, Scripture offers us a mirror. And it's not a carnival mirror like the world gives. It's a mirror in which we see who we were created to be, and yet who we really are. And as much as we'd like to filter our self-assessments, as much as we'd like to say, I'm okay, you're okay, Scripture offers us an honest assessment. And listen, this is why we need it. It, It's not for the purpose of pouring on guilt or shame, though those feelings do sometimes come when we're exposed. But it's because those places where we are wanting to filter, where we're wanting to hide, where we're wanting to diminish, are the very things that God wants to work to redeem. Which is why what happens next only makes sense in that story. Because look at what happens in verses 10 to 12. Then he, and I'm assuming this is Ezra, said to them, go your way, Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing 
ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Listen, this is remarkable. They've been weeping. And after their weeping, Ezra, the leaders say, Don't be grieved. Get your microbrew. Get a really good steak. Make sure you invite other people who don't have those things and celebrate. Like, have a feast. Rejoice. Why? Well, here's what it is. One commenter put it this way. They need to set their legitimate sense of failure within the wider context of God's grace and invitation. Listen, oftentimes when we think about building our life on Scripture, we think it's a... It's about achievement. It's about what am I going to do for God? It's a book where we think God helps those who help themselves. And yet, listen, when it says the joy of the Lord is your strength, notice that. It's the joy of the Lord and this is the joy. That in the midst of their failures and their sins and their waywardness, God's steadfast love has not stopped. It has met them right where they are in the midst of their unbelief, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their failure. He meets them. He will not cancel them. Which is why we don't need, we don't need to pretend or minimize or diminish our sin or failures or waywardness. We can come as we are. We can rejoice in the midst of the grief because of who he is and what he's done. And here's the beauty. You know the Feast of Booths? We were in that for a moment. You know what the Feast of Booths was? It was a reenactment of a former time in which they, God's people, had been disobedient. And because of that, they had to wander in the wilderness. And yet even then, God was faithful to be with them in the midst of their wanderings. And do you realize what's happening here? They've been 70 years in exile and they are reenacting this story. The story of really the whole world. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The the story of the whole world, it's, it's simply this. It's going away and coming back home again. It's of slavery, of exodus, and it's of exile and restoration. And they're seeing how God has been faithful with his steadfast love. And this is why in verse 17, listen, it reads this. And there was very great rejoicing. And here's what's remarkable. Hundreds of years later, in the city of Jerusalem. They were celebrating this feast again. And Jesus stood up. And on the last day of the feast, he says these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
You see, their rejoicing was seeing their story in light of God's story. Their sin and failure in light of God's grace and invitation. And listen, Jesus is the culmination of it, right? Listen, when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he say that? It's because he's in exile. It's because he's cast out. And it's not because of his sin. It's because of ours. And when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, it means this, the invitation is out there. I have taken your exile. I have taken your penalty so you can be brought back home again. And that's why there can be very great rejoicing. Do you see? All of Scripture, listen, the ultimate reason why we build our life on Scripture, listening attentively, submissively, practically, obediently, is because it ultimately leads, it's ultimately about Him. Listen, if your joy is in Him, it cannot be taken from you. Do you know that? If your joy is ultimately in Him, it, can, it will not fade. It's all found through Scripture. It's all there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and what it reveals about you, what it reveals about us. And Lord, would you take our hearts, which at times, to be honest, are distracted, for honest, apathetic towards it. And would you help us to be a community that plants our lives in it and that ultimately, because of it, again and again, it would lead to seeing and savoring the Son who's come after us. And would you change us? Would you transform us through it? We need your help. And we ask this in your name. Amen.